Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Oceanside, California, after a great Thanksgiving week. I hope everybody got a little bit of uh, R&R adjusted, though it may have been this year. And we are recording today's episode on Giving Tuesday. You'll probably hear it a couple of weeks after. Uh, But I am privileged to welcome Beth Krigler, who serves as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Development at UNC Charlotte. Welcome, Beth. Well, thank you, Brent. I wish I were coming from sunny California. I'm coming from somewhat sunny North Carolina, but happy to be with you. Yeah. Hey, I think on the spectrum of things, North Carolina weather is nothing to shake a stick at. So uh, hopefully you're- not quite California, but it's pretty good. Fair enough. Um, Well, look, we look forward to hosting you and you have uh, an interesting background with uh, some twists and turns along the way uh, in your advancement journey, uh, spending time outside of higher education, inside of higher education. And so I'm very much excited to uh, to learn more about your journey and specifically what you're looking forward to as you continue to advance in your role uh, at UNC Charlotte. But why don't you just give us a quick background, uh, where you grew up, who you were. I love hearing our guests' own higher education journeys and sort of what led you to the University of South Carolina. So um, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, which is the home um, of the Gamecocks. I am the oldest of five girls, and my um, I have a long family history at South Carolina, but my father passed away when I was in high school, and um, South Carolina was not really on the radar screen for me at the time because I wanted to, to move out of the city, and um, I felt like after that happened, being the oldest, I, I, it would be better for me to be in, you know, at least in the same city. Thankfully, I had great family support that I didn't tell my mother that's what I wanted. But my um, uncle stepped in and said, hey, you can go to school there if you want, but you're going to live on campus. So in my mind, I, I thought I'll be here for one year and then I'll transfer and you probably could not have pulled me out of there with a crowbar. It was the happiest you know, time of my life. Great decision. Um, so I did grow up in Columbia. I moved to Charlotte right after. Well, and have been here. I just got to ask, oldest of five girls, I mean, any real highlights or just crazy <laughs> stories that you can uh, share uh, that you feel comfortable sharing you with know, our audience? Um, I am 12 years older than my youngest. And so I started college when she started kindergarten and, um, you know, there were, other than lots of fights over clothes, primarily, um, I remember coming home one day and my mother um, had put a padlock on her closet door because one of us would always go in and, you know, inevitably find the most expensive pair of shoes or sweater or something that she would have, have to go find stuffed in a locker in our school or something. So I do remember lots of that. We're all very close. Um, we all live within um, we're all in North Carolina and South Carolina, so lots of nieces, nephews. Um, my husband is one of four boys, and we have two girls. So we knew there was no, you know, it was going to be a single sex. Wow. Keep going, and we were going to have more girls. Well, I'm I'm one of three boys, and my wife is one of three girls, and we have three boys. So yeah, her whole world has sort of been uh, turned upside down. I think. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was fun, though. Definitely a great time. And uh, I imagine, I mean, you know, sort of tragic circumstances, but being able to stay near your siblings during college had to be um, uh, fun as well. Did they ever get to uh, come uh, come to campus and <laughs> hang with uh, Beth or? 
Uh, so occasionally they did, but, um, you know, there were a few phone calls that I recall getting when they were all in high school that, you know, my mom might have been somewhere out of town and there they hosted a party that got a little out of control. So it was more that, you know, oh gosh, what do we do? Mom's going to find this out, help us <laughs> sort of things. But it was, it was awfully fun. And so you ended up uh, studying uh, marketing and uh, finance at uh, South Carolina. Is that something you expected going in? You know, I um, I did. Um, I, I always felt like I would be some sort of business um, major. And that just sort of um, suited me well. And right out of college, I did get recruited to work for... Um, what is now Nations Bank was the North Carolina National Bank in Charlotte. Um, I was only there, I was there for, gosh, not, not much more than two years and, and loved it, but got recruited to um, Charlotte Latin School, which is a private TK through 12 school into fundraising. They had a new assistant headmaster and um, a friend of mine was going to be their alumni person. And he said, hey, I'm looking for someone young and outgoing that I could mold into fundraising. And he was pretty persistent. Um, he kept calling me about a job and I was like, I don't know anything about fundraising. I'm not interested. I canceled meetings with him a couple of times and finally couldn't come up with an excuse not to go to lunch. Um, he was extremely persuasive, which is usually good fundraisers are. Um, I accepted the job that I did not know I was applying for over lunch, um, took the job as a, as a gift officer. I, I, I think they even gave me the term director of development. I'm not sure why or how I was 24 years old at the time, um, took the job and was really didn't love it. Um, the first couple of weeks, I was like, oh, gosh, this is awful. I'm going to have to ask people for money. I mean, I don't know what I've done. And I called my boss at the bank, who happened to be a parent at Charlotte Latin School. And I said, look, I, I know I'm breaking every etiquette rule. Is this good Southerner um, that there is? But if you haven't filled my position, I'd love to have it back. And he was great. And he said, Beth, I will take you back at any time. But you've not given this a fair shot. He said, we'll put a date on the calendar six weeks from now. And if you still want to come back to the bank, I'll bring you back. And in that six weeks, I was in love. So in a certain regard, it couldn't have started worse. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, it, it couldn't it, have. You take the new job. You're, you're really sold on it. What do you think it was? I mean, did you even know what the work entailed when you accepted the position? No idea. I bought his vision of we're going to do all of these grand things and we're going to make all of these, you know, make this great impact. We're going to build all these new buildings. There's this great, you know, thing to do. And I'm, you know, it's a great profession. I'm going to teach you. You're going to learn from me. And I bought it. I had no idea what it was. And then when I got to the office and, and realized I might have to sit with someone and, and ask for money, um, I, you know, I didn't know how to do it. And I thought, gosh, that sounds awful. And you so no training, no, no coaching, no just really Nothing. just get thrown into it. But it was awesome. My first gift was a $25,000 ask and they said, yes, I did it by myself and I was hooked from there. Were you nervous? What was that like? Take me back oh, to that first ask. What did you say? <laughs> 
So I was a nervous wreck. Um, I had learned, I'd probably only been on the job a, a couple of weeks, um, but I had learned what a gift pyramid was. Um, you know, we had a, he had a, we had a can start of a campaign. We had a project we were funding. So we had put together a gift chart. Um, I was going to lunch. I still remember Michael Rankin was the, the donor's name. And um, my boss was coming to lunch with us as well. This was before cell phones and um, we were driving separately sitting in the booth at the restaurant, just trying to make small talk and the waiter walked up. Um, this is, I was not married then. Um, I think I was engaged and I was like, are you Miss Derek? And I said, I am. He said, well, I have a message from Mr. Battle and he's not gonna be able to join you all today. And would like for y'all to go ahead. And I thought, oh my God. I mean, I thought I might throw up. I didn't know what to, what to do, what to say. We continued through lunch, made small talk, and I pulled out the little packet that we had put together. This is what we wanted to do. And I got to the gift pyramid page. And I don't know if Michael felt sorry for me or what it was, but he reached across the table and he pointed to the $25,000 block and he said, we'll do this. And, and I do remember as plain as day and I went, you will? Like, oh my gosh, like really? Wow. That's awesome. And then then it became that, you know, I don't know that many people get that shot first. That's your first ask um, is something that big. And um, I think it's also great when you're working for an independent day school, you have a collection of committed parents. So it was an easy introduction to, you know, to fundraising and asking people. So we had incredible success. That was my love of major gifts. And I I never looked back. I mean, I was hooked. I was sold on campaigns and major gifts. Then I just had to learn exactly how to do it. It is so neat when people have such poignant memories of their first ask of their first gift. Let me contrast that with how you would approach that meeting today and, and how many times you've now been through that discussion. It's got to feel a little bit, I don't know, is it is it easy now? Do you still get nervous now? I mean, how, how would you approach it today versus that nervous wreck uh, in the booth who yeah. can't believe her boss is not showing up for lunch? I know. So a couple of things I would say now, I wouldn't say it's really nervousness. I would say there's excitement. I think still today there are butterflies that have, gosh, this is something you've planned for, you've worked on, what might happen. I love that. I love that feeling. Um you know, I don't know if it's what an adrenaline junkie has of jumping out of an airplane or what it is, but you like that excitement. Then it was truly was pure nervousness. But I will say that the one thing my boss, what he did for me, he was a, um, a big believer in we kind of, we didn't role play per se of, you know, talking it out, but he did always make me come in and he said, okay, tell me what Michael is going to be thinking put yourself in the place of the donor, what are they going to ask you? So we didn't role play, but we had to think, okay, if I were Michael and you were asking me for this, this is what I would want to know. And before, you know, in training, before those guests, that's what we did. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I had to come in and pretend to be this person, but I had to come in and say, we're going to ask John Smith for this today. And I think this is what John's going to ask me. And this is why I think he's going to ask this. So to this day, I still am always thinking, okay, step out of my box and into theirs and what might I want to, to know? So that, that was a great, I mean, it was great training. 
do you have any experiences where, you know, I'm always interested in calibrating the ask, and there's certainly some research that we have at our disposal, but ultimately, uh, there's just a lot of discretion in what you could ask someone to consider in what uh, somebody's po- capable of doing, uh, depending on their level of interest and enthusiasm for a specific initiative. Do you have any um, instances that you'd be willing to share where you were just way off or where the, the kind of alignment of maybe what you thought was possible and what the donor was prepared to entertain were just completely off base? Uh, because sometimes we can learn from those uh, those examples as well, and no worries if nothing comes to mind. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I can think of instances where we're off in both places, right? Where you're over, you're asking for too large of an amount, and when you've asked for too small, um, I think when you've when you really live in the major gift world and principal guests, transformational guests for a long time. Um, Oftentimes the ask is very apparent because you're talking about the problem you want to solve and how it's going to be solved. So often the donor knows what that's going to cost, what that's going to be. Now they, and, you know, I I think I can think of times of recovering, you know, if we say it's going to cost a million dollars to do this and they go, oh gosh, you know, gosh, that's not something I can do. I hope you didn't think I could do that or that's more than I was thinking um, you know, being able to say, well, how can we, how can, who else can help us do this? How together, what else can we bring in? Who, what other, you know, is there a, a, a foundation, a, the corporation, the company you work for, another alum, whoever it might be. But, um, you know, I, I always talk to our team about, you know, we've got all of this intelligence, right, of what we think wealth screening might be. And it, you know, I would say you believe that to guide you and where you might want to start your, you know, who I'm going to go call because I've got all these people. Well, I'm going to start with those that might well screen at the highest, but that's really, that's never the right answer. I, I mean, it's right. an example. Yeah. So really the, the advice would be, let's frame it through the impact that we want to achieve, the cost of that impact, and then we can start to navigate what portion of that pie might a given donor be interested in, in sort of accounting for, and then how can we work collaboratively with that prospect to maybe identify other ways to, to solve the problem? I think um, most of our donors, um, if not all, do you want to have an impact, right? They want to make an impact. Some, some can be influenced by, what their name's going to be on, you know, and how big a lights, what size of a building, what size of a program that does motivate some, but not everyone. And even those that it, that are motivated by that could give anywhere. So they're giving to make a difference. So if you start with, here's, here's what we need. Here's how you can help us. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. We're trying to make the community better. We're trying to make our university better. We want student success, whatever it is, then this is what it is. Where can you play? What role do you want to play in this? So it's a little bit of like that first donor who picked the spot in the pyramid where they wanted to be. There's an element of that mm-hmm. at a project level, not just a campaign level. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, there's you know, lots of discussion. Um, universities are often, if you're not in a campaign, you're planning for one. But I do think 
um, there's something to be said for universities that are getting out of these big comprehensive campaigns and you're in project-driven fundraising that it's always, because it's, it's what you're doing, even in these big comprehensive campaigns. Um, I don't know many people, you know, you've got your pillars of, we wanna do this and faculty support and this is student success and you know what, oh, well, we're there, we're not gonna take more because we've raised that 100 million or, uh, you know, billion, whatever it is. Sorry, you might be interested in scholarship, but we really want you to, we need, you know, professorships, whatever it is. So it's right. what the donor wants anyway, um, you know, what their interest is. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the donors that you've worked with. You made the move uh, to a healthcare organization and you spent uh, almost nine years in the healthcare fundraising world. What was the catalyst to do that? What was it like? Any just observations of the, the similarities and big differences from the, the higher ed or even K-12 private sector? You know, there are a lot of similarities. Um, I will tell you when I started, again, I was just sort of recruited by this charismatic person. Hey, we need your help. I started in it in kind of a consulting fundraising role, um, not really understanding why hospitals and healthcare systems needed philanthropy. Right there, you know, insurance pays, they're always making big dollars, physicians are paid a lot. Why why do you need financial support? And really, I think that a lot of the community at large um, feels that way. What's really special, I think, about healthcare fundraising is that grateful patient experience. So I've gone through, or a family member has gone through a life-changing um, health event, and the outcome could have been good and then I'm very grateful and I want to I want to help someone else going through this that's less fortunate or the outcome wasn't what we wanted and now I want to honor my loved one in some way and the I am um, I'm probably I've had lots of people tell me that I've worked with over the years I probably ask faster than most people um, I often tell some of um, the people who work for me or when I make presentations, people with the ability to give don't often need more friends. They're not meeting with us just because they like us. They know why we're there and what, you know, what we want to do. So I, I do ask kind of fast, but in a healthcare situation, when you're with someone who's going through a traumatic experience, your relationship deepens very quickly. And, you know, you're often at their bedside when, a loved one is dying or when they're at their worst. So you feel really close. So getting to the point of, you wanna help us do this, this is how we do it. It just naturally occurs. Um, I loved being able to support families in that position. Um, so it was, you know, it, was a, it was a great experience. I will tell you that people in higher ed um, don't always realize we think we're really unique and very different and no one else is like us. And when I was um, looking at making the move to UNC Charlotte, I did have a lot of questions, you know, a lot of people question, well, gosh, you've not been in higher ed and you're going to take a really big position. You know, it's, it's, it's very different. And um, you've never worked with deans and, you know, what they think and how they think. And I would always say, well, have you ever worked with a neurosurgeon? I mean, I'm not sure there's a smarter person in the room ever. Um, 
but it's the same health, you know, higher ed, we've got college of business, college of health and sciences, colleges of, you know, whatever education, healthcare is set up the same way. You've got cancer, you've got pediatrics, you've got cardiovascular, and you've got leaders of each, and you've got physicians in each that might be much like your faculty members are. Um, there's a great annual giving opportunity. There's great your gift um, capacity. I would say, and most of my colleagues in higher ed probably don't want to hear me say this, I think higher ed's a little easier because there's a ready-made group of alumni that under that have a passion for, often have a passion for where they went to school. Um, and healthcare, you've got to sell that a little more. Um, not everyone understands it inherently. So, but but a lot the same. And um as you reflect on that period, my understanding is you did work with some uh, uniquely high-profile philanthropists in the area. Does anybody come to mind? So um, I am very proud of, and it was a great experience to work with Michael Jordan. Um, Michael Jordan, obviously, you know, greatest of all time. As a lot of people, I guess we can debate LeBron James or Michael Jordan, whoever is the, you know, the good of basketball. Um, he owns the professional basketball team in Charlotte and Nevant Health, where I worked, we were the healthcare provider. So there is a natural partnership already. Um, and our CEO was having conversations with Michael and about, you know, we're trying to, we're always trying to raise money, trying to, you know, support different initiatives. And he made the comment, oh, well, I, I would be interested in entertaining a gift. And, um, it took a long time, and um, I will say it is definitely the hardest gift I ever closed, but not because working with him was delightful um, with his team. Um, he works with the Rockefeller Foundation, and so he had great counsel, um, you know, great care. This was really before he was, um, he, he's now given some incredible guests across the country, and really, I think, thinking about his legacy and doing very impactful things, but those weren't as prevalent or well-known when we were working on this gift. And, um, you know, I think the, the hospital at first thought about, you naturally think of sports and orthopedic and, you know, people get hurt and injured and this is his life. This is where he's made all of this money. This is where we ought to structure a gift. And um, we met with Michael's team a lot, but we met with his team the first time and we made the pitch for something that you could, you did not have to have been in fundraising very long to be able to read the room and know that this was not something that was resonating with them. So stopping the conversation, flipping the conversation of what would, you know, what would you like to see? What would Michael like? Um, and, it, you know, what, what his passion was and what he wanted was helping children and helping families. And um, in the it's hard sometimes to have free clinics. Um, it's not always the best for the community, but it, it's, it's an expensive, you know, helping uninsured, it's an expensive venture for the hospital. Um, but I, I learned this from another um, boss that I had, but she would always, if someone said a word, um, family, children, love, whatever it was, every time that the dinner or whoever you were talking to said that word, she put a little tick mark beside it. So when you finish the conversation, 
Well, if they said the word family 35 times in an hour conversation, then by gosh, that was really important to them. And that those words, and it wasn't just family or love, it could have been, you know, awesome or whatever it was they said, we made sure that those words were given back to them in the form of a proposal. But we knew what he would be interested in, but really getting that um, program together. So we had to sell internally. How could we do this? What can we do? How could we offset costs? What is it? There was, it was, it was non-traditional. And so it was getting the healthcare system to, to find the, you know, it, it was all the same problem, but what he wanted and how we could do it took a long time to, to come together. So it was awfully nice to see it. There are two, two clinics, comprehensive clinics in Charlotte um, in working with some of our most at-risk families and no longer do they have to go to this doctor for this and get on a bus and go here for this service, everything's together. Um, so it was really a great experience. You've referenced his team a couple of times. So who is Michael Jordan's Scotty Pippen of philanthropy? Like, what is it? Uh, what is it like working with a team? What does that mean? And have you dealt with it with other, you know, very high net worth supporters, or is it unique to to Michael's situation? No, I, I don't think it's unique at all to his situation. Um, whether it is, you know, lots of our um, philanthropists, large philanthropists, have financial advisors. Um, they may have, often we are, you know, you're dealing with a family office. So you may have an administrator that has a family office because it's two brothers and their children and grandchildren. They're all in a, a family business. And, you know, some of, um, you know, your business leaders, as well as any of these athletes or celebrities, they have PR people and communications and you've got to work through, you know, if it has hey, this the right thing, how is this the right name? How's the name going to appear, you know, with, with them, then their attorneys. Um, but I, I don't think that's any different. And I wouldn't even suggest that his is the largest that we've ever worked with. But there is, you know, for him and, and a lot of others, you don't, they may have said, yes, hey, I'm interested. Now you all go figure out how we can do this and then let me see it. And certainly have input and influence, but there were a lot of, of things we had to work through before then. But I, I think that happens in a lot of our major guests. So what does the stewardship plan look like for Michael Jordan? Well, you know, I um, I left before, <laughs> before the entire stewardship plan, before the buildings were built. But um, I do think that's often, um, we were talking about that today with our team, with some major guests. Um, the stewardship plan is as important, right, as the, the cultivation plan. And so it's easy to think about um, what is the, the unveiling ceremony or what does the press release look like that announces, is there a video that goes with that? And in this things, I think most team members, it's like, all right, that's my stewardship plan. But it's what happens two months after that. And three months after that, and if it's a scholarship plan, is there interaction with um, how, you know, and it's, I think it's also easy to, to say, okay, because they made a gift of this level, they're invited to A, B, C, D, and E. But then 
what happens when they're there and it's not just the gift officer who's managing them there. Have they, you know, have they met the new dean? Have they? And so having those active um, stewardship plans because you hope you go through solicitation to stewardship, which is right back into cultivation. And so it's, um, I do think it's, I do think it's an art. Um, I think there's science to it, but I almost think there's more art to that than there is to solicitation. Yeah, I mean, I, I share your point of view on that. And I think that um, especially given all of the change that we've experienced around COVID and a lot of the ways that we traditionally did do stewardship, the uh, in-person gala or the award ceremony or, or you know, some of the physical events that would often honor those donors. We're, we're seeing lots of innovation happen right now to think about how can we create a more digital and consistent ongoing stewardship experience so that that we don't just kind of put them in the stewardship bucket, you know, compartmentalize the donors over there uh, in the absence of really uh, continuing to engage them in, in what could be a, a future, even larger uh, opportunity. I agree. And um, I do think all of our events teams and gift officers have gotten really creative, um, but it's it's sometimes the, the simple things as well that are different from, you know, a scholarship recipient saying thank you because they've written a thank you note, but what if it's, you know, someone that's also just in the business school, a student that you happen to see that's done something cool that, you know, you get a short little video yeah. of, or, you know, sending those articles, just thought you'd like to see this. Have you seen this video that was created for, um, I did not know. Um, I hope that other listeners did know that there's a first generation college day, a day that we celebrate first generation college students. Um, UNC Charlotte is, um, has a very large population of first generation college students. But once that was, that video was created for social media, um, you know, I took the opportunity to send it to missed everyone in my portfolio to say, gosh, this is our why. Even if they weren't a scholarship donor, but they care about UNC Charlotte and that's who we are. So making sure that those things, those stewardship pieces had to be intentional. I couldn't agree more. Um, do you know when that first gen day is? Um, I'm not too familiar with you it. Know, so it, I could tell it just happened uh, in November sometime. Wow. Okay, great. We can look up the exact date. I don't think we made it up, but um, there was a big celebration of, so it was in, sometime in November. It was our communications team that did that and they sent around some, hey, we want to do a video of some first generation, um, you know, college students and alums. Um, it was a sweet little thing. I think they took some students and um, they thought they were being interviewed for I don't know, some program within their college and they put them in front of a camera and they read a note from their mom and dad. And, you know, they cried as they were reading from their mom and dad and then they have pictures of the family. It was really sweet. And, um, you know, talked about them doing something that they couldn't do, you know, and, wow. so, and it was, it was very powerful. And I was like, gosh, I had no idea that day existed and we should have known as fundraisers. It was our communications team, but we'll know next year. Um, if you have a copy of that, that video or a link to the video, I'd love to include it in the show notes if it's at all public. Um, sounds, sounds pretty, pretty high impact for sure. I will, I will uh, you've, talked, you've said in the past that you think as a sector, we are very slow to ask for impactful gifts. What do you mean by that? 
Um, I think sometimes we're rigid in our, you've made a gift. So then I move you to the next person and I call and meet with you for, you know, say thank you. And then I call and meet with you. And then I meet again to figure out what you might be interested in, but you've, you've said it. So I want to make sure that you've met the Dean. And I just feel like we're slow to get to the, this is what I want to do. I think sometimes we feel like we have to follow the process that we've prescribed and we mm-hmm. give ourselves enough um, flexibility to, to pick up on the cues that the donor is saying or giving you and feel like you can make next, next ask. Um, I just had a day. I mean, when I moved to UNC Charlotte um, two years ago, I was the benefactor of closing a gift that someone had already set up. Um, uh, you know, for two and a half million, that was really nice. But the first time I met with the donor in person, by touring, I'm like, I, I can tell there, I can tell that there's more interest and I can tell what the interest is. And it's a, a little different than this. And then I so very quickly asked for an $8 million. I mean, they gave us 10 million within a year. I mean, who would really close a two and a half and then ask again? But it was, it was apparent to me. And so just bringing up that conversation, hey, you know, John, I've, you know, I, I just wanted to follow up on something that you said when we were here on campus. And I wanted you to know, you know, we like, um, you know, I know that you don't, you aren't motivated by having your name on something. However, let me tell you why that's important to us and why it inspires others and why it helps. And, you know, I, I just think we would have said they, they are moving into stewardship and we're going to do A, B, C, and D before we move them to the next bucket. And that's, uh, but do you have any, how do you, um, because I think what you're saying is like, don't be shy, right? We have big problems that need to be solved, right? These philanthropists yeah. want to solve problems. And if there's an opportunity to do more sooner, we shouldn't be shy, but there's a fine line between that and being too pushy, too aggressive, et cetera. Do you have specific sentences or phrases that you'll use to just test the waters without putting them too on the spot? Um, you know, maybe role play with me a little bit of, of what that conversation might look like um, so quickly after a seven figure gift. Yeah, well, you know, I, I haven't really thought of that. No one's asked me, you know, what are the phrases that you use, even though when we're talking, you know, when we're sitting in strategy sessions. Um, but it is, it might be, I mean, Brent, how do you, you know, how do you feel about what we've just done? Are we making the impact that that you wanted to make? Let us tell you, you know, and I don't shy away from, this is incredible. This is, you know, what you've done is, you know, so meaningful to us. Um, and no, I want you to know that we're going to continue to work on this problem. This doesn't, we're going to continue to go out and get more scholarships. We are not, this, this isn't all that we need. We need more. Would you be willing to help us? You know, can we use your story to inspire others? Would you maybe help? Which lets them know, right? This isn't this isn't done. This isn't it. I didn't. I made a difference, and I did. And often, you know, you hope that people are giving um, that you've had great conversations, and they're giving what what they can or what they want to do. And it doesn't always happen that they'll give that quickly again. But I. But I think you have to, I don't think we always make the assumption that you're going to be a lifetime donor, 
right? So the next gift is coming, you hope, whether it's in one year or five years. So if we're keeping them as their lifetime donor, they're going to give again. This is not their last gift. Um, I have found that with a lot of our team members, um, you know, we talk about playing gift as the ultimate gift. Well, sometimes we think that that's the last gift. Well, if they've made that gift, that's the ultimate gift. Why wouldn't they want to continue to give during their lifetime and see it? But I, I found that a lot of our plans and a lot of our things kind of sometimes sort of they, they went into this permanent stewardship sort of mindset because right. they've made that, you know, two million, that seven figure or six fig, high six figure planned gift. Well, right. Yeah, what, what a signal of capacity and affinity and just letting it sit there. You know, they might have made that commitment seven years ago, right? 12 years ago. I mean, think about how different the world is today. Think about how different the stock market is, right? Think about retirement account balances. There's so many factors, real estate, asset growth. Um, they could be in a totally different context. And if nobody's sort of really challenging them to think bigger, to understand new ways to, you know, make an even bigger impact, you know, especially if they created the, you know, the, the, the will or the bequest or whatever at, at the age of 65, now they're 75, they still might have 15 or 20 years left. And so that's yeah. such a, such a long time. I mean, and I am not suggesting that um, there aren't people who've made an ultimate gift and that you, everybody you can ask the next year, but I do think we have to, this isn't the last gift you've made to me. So it's okay to still, provide them with opportunities to give or to spark their interest. And um, I'm sure that, that everyone does, but, you know, when you use someone who's just made a major gift to thank someone else who just made a major gift and not being shy about um, that inspires others and well, their gift might've been a little bit bigger and gosh, well, okay. Like to do or using someone that, has the potential to make that size of gift, but hasn't yet made it to be in that stewardship of that donor. It often raises their sights. And, um, you know, I, I guess that's, I, I don't know if their phrases or I think take, there are all sorts of cues from donors that you can take, but I think it's just always thinking what's next. You've also commented, I just see this recurring theme in our conversations just around pace, around speed, around, assertiveness. And you've said in the past, or one of the expressions you use with your team is that our industry, the advancement sector, or maybe broader nonprofit fundraising sector is blockbuster, but our donors are on Netflix. And why do you say that? And frankly, where do you develop that perspective? Because let's be honest, you've kind of grown up in this industry. So what is it that has inspired you to look outside of the sector for inspiration? Yeah, so I, I do think I have, um, I certainly have grown up in development, but I have found myself in positions where we, with great opportunity and ability to grow, but not yet, you know, I've been able to put together the team to have that. So I think I've always had to think um, differently. But when I think about Netflix, um, you know, it's not just that, I, I do think a blockbuster is just old and sometimes higher ed is just slow. And, you know, especially when you're in a state system and, I might want to change technologies or I might want to do something. I have to get through an RFP and I have, you know, they're just, it's just the wheels of mission of just what you have to do. And, and I think, you know, we're now working, particularly with our younger donors, 
who have grown up with information at their fingertips and they turn on Netflix and I just finished a great show. And that, what do they say? Well, you might like this, you know, so they're intuitively saying, and we laugh that I just thought about a pair of shoes and by gosh, I pick up the, you know, I pick up my social media and there are those shoes. I mean, somehow they know, I mean, there's technology, people know what we're interested in. And I feel like it's with dinners the same way. It's not, you know, we might have always made notes of, oh, they're allergic to seafood. And so don't, you know, don't send them this or do, but we haven't always, you know, we, we probably thought it was at one point, I'll use a phrase that my children use, and it would have been creepy to say, oh gosh, I know your favorite wine is this or your, you know, your, I don't know, you know, your granddaughter's now playing lacrosse at this college and say, so well, I'm going right. to do something about our lacrosse team. Just how do we use that to know that your dinner's interested? And again, I'll get back to, um, I may be friends. I really do think I have great friends that are our donors and over a lifetime of being in this certainly um, have grown to have great friendships, but they didn't start because they wanted to be a friend. I mean, they, they know why we're calling them. And so it is, I feel like it's our job to say, Hey, I know you like this. I know you have an interest in this. Would you care? Would you like to see this? Or I thought you might like to see this because of this. Um, and how do you use that? How do we how do we get people to think that way? How do you get your gift officers to think that way? Yeah, I mean, I think creepy is a uh, is a sort of, sort of cousin of highly personalized, and yes. it can be creepy or it can be really well personalized. And I think one thing that is for sure is when you dig through decades of contact reports about our donors. We've always tried to dig and learn information and, you know, word of mouth uh, sharing about certain people. So there's always mm -hmm. been some form of intelligence about our donors. It's just become much more automated with the growth, growth of digital channels. And even in your example of the, the first gen access uh, conversation, right? How do we share that kind of content, track who responds, qualify those mm -hmm. prospects, and then have a really clear sense that they might be interested in first gen impact doesn't mean that they're going to want to fund it immediately, but we'd be crazy not to at least recognize, hey, my understanding best is that you have become aware of some of our work around the first gen space, or that, that might be of interest to you. Would you like to learn more? And just being able to sort of narrow that broad discovery process to hone in on something that that, that there's uh, apparent interest in is, is an advantage for the institution, but it's also good for the donor, or, or it certainly can be. No, and I, I think that social media is, um, you know, while we can say all of the terrible things that people might say about it for us and our business, it is a great tool. And you can discover a lot about what people um, like and, and dislike and do just from just from their social media. And I think we should, I think it's respectful to use it. I don't think it's creepy. Um, but I think it does speed up what would have been a longer process in the past. I know more that I might would have had to have met with somebody several times to find out. Absolutely. And look, we only have so much time in the day, right? And part of your job as a leader is to be as efficient as you can with your resources. And if you can get a signal of interest or capacity or uh, affinity from a digital channel that allows you to further refine your pool, because the reality is you can't get 
to everyone, right, in a fully personalized way. You can only get to some. And if the data can help point you and your team in the right direction, that's in everybody's interest. That's going to allow you to help the students more quickly. It's going to allow you to support the deans more efficiently. And so there really is, I, I think, a, uh, you know, almost a responsibility to use that sort of information to make sure you're not wasting your limited resources uh, in, in a less analytical uh, capacity. I'm biased, but that's my view. I, well, you know that I um, agree with you and do think that it's just time to, um, to innovate. And I mean, every right. industry reaches that time. And I mean, hopefully you're always evolving, but I do think it's um, higher ed is certainly innovating. So I think it's time for us to do it. So what are you excited about in the advancement space? When you think about innovation this year, next year, obviously there's um, external forces that have caused tremendous innovation, right? We've seen um, such an adoption of technology, not just Zoom, but many others as well mm -hmm. over the last year. Uh, young people, old people, domestic, global, you name it, we're all now a Zoom link away. Uh, that has implications, but what are other themes that you're excited about when you think about uh, 2021? And, you know, I just was listening to CNBC this morning and they were saying that by May or June, things might actually be like, back to normal, knock on wood. That seems so, so far from where we are at this moment uh, in, in uh, early December, but let's just say that they are kind of quote unquote back to normal next year. What does that mean for advancement? Do we just go back to normal or do we continue to innovate? Yeah, I, I don't think, um, uh, look, I'm the first that wants to be back to normal and I do hope we are that we're out traveling and gathering together. And, and I do think there's um, as many creative things as we have, nothing beats kind of being face-to-face -face, um, with someone. But I do think that a lot of this virtual world is going to stick around. I do think that, and even if it's just, I can meet more often um, with a dinner virtually to do something, or it's just that I think it's a training, a retraining of us as development officers. I don't have to be face-to-face -face with someone to have a meaningful conversation. You know, I can, I can pick up the phone and call. I can send them email. There is digital information that I can, whether that's video or, or whatever else it, it is, I can move the relationship along without being face-to-face. -face. And I think that will, back to my term of kind of speeding things up, I think that will. I also think the concept of digital gift officers, while it was it was here before the pandemic hit, it was certainly happening. I think it has made people realize, oh wow. So I, I now can visualize how that works because I've had to do it. You know, and before I think people in sometimes in our positions, it's been a long time since they were in the trenches doing things. And I challenged our team the other day. We had to do a bunch of discovery calls and, uh, you know, and I participated in, we had a little challenge. Let's take these unknown 50 donors and everybody take a certain number and let's see how many you can get in touch with in you know, this period of time. And I had this moment of, oh God, it has been a long time since I had to do this. Let's hope I can, let's hope I can do it. Um, so I, I think that there's part of what we've experienced um, is going to stick around. And I think that's going to be very helpful to us. Um, I think it's also trained, uh, right? It's not just us, all of our donors are doing the same thing. So they get it now too. So that's good for us. I'm also excited about, um, I think we've talked about this before, but 
Um, prospect strategy and research. I feel like that is a group that that is that that discipline is really evolving as well. It's no longer just creating a profile. I give you five names. You create these one-page profiles, send them back to me a week later or three days later or whatever it is. Or they go through the same wealth screening process to put somebody in a portfolio and do some research. I feel like there's more information for them as well that they can react to and probably um, have to react to faster. So I think yeah. their changing is exciting. Um, I think stewardship changing because the donor has changed because they've grown up with immediate results and we've talked so much about that and what that generation wants to see but it has forced us to think differently and to be different and I think we're just scratching the surface or at least I know that we are um, and what that means so I can see that transforming as we speak as well which I think all of that um, makes a major gift officer somewhat, it certainly changed the way they do work, but I think we're going to have greater success because you're going to get people that you're talking to that are really primed for, that have had a different experience with your university, with your organization. Um, so that's pretty cool to think about what that's going to mean and look like. I think numbers are going to change. You know, the old adage of, gosh, well, if you have a major gift officer that's raising a million dollars, check the box. That's good. You know, I don't think that's good anymore. I mean, it could be for certain ones, but I think there's a lot of analysis that's changed. So it's, it's all pretty exciting. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, I think just your comment around the research space, you know, we think of prospect research historically having been quite reactive, not proactive. And we're seeing such an opportunity to take some of the commodity work that they had been accountable for in the past, right? Maintaining data or doing the wealth screen. I mean, so much of that can be automated through technology that can really free up that that group to be much more proactive and strategic. We, we talk a lot. I mean, you mentioned your communications colleagues. How do we have a prospect development group that sits in between gift officers and communications so that when the story is told, you know, when the tears are being shed, that that generates emotion and, and, and data that we can then use to work into our broader process to make sure that gift officers are quickly getting proactive insights, not just reactive, here's the bio. So I'm, I'm with you uh, on that big time. And certainly when we look at the, the digital gift officer space, some of the donor experience work that we've been doing, just a tremendous opportunity right now to take this moment in the pandemic and really make lemonade and, and try to help um, reshape our org chart going forward to be more efficient, to cover more of the giving pyramid, um, but ultimately to do so in pursuit of a better donor experience, you know, deeper uh, into the pyramid. And, and so um, it's, it, it is an exciting time. I mean, it's an exhausting time. I think we're all tired, uh, but at the same time, you know, at the same time, like we can't just uh, hope for things to go back to normal. And, and I think we can land in a hybrid zone where we do get some of those really rich in-person experiences and, we're all ready for hugs and handshakes, but uh, at the same time, we'd be remiss if we weren't thinking about the fact that we can now reach literally everyone in our community, old, young, rich, poor, you name it, domestic, global, through this and other technology. And uh, we would be we would be really remiss not to, to continue to attack that um, as things hopefully improve here in the coming months. Could not agree with you. Could not agree with you more. Um, there are lots of things, and I, I will tell you, uh, 
you know, we engaged with you all um, in a LinkedIn um, research space to look at our database and tell us job changes. And, you know, we've been through, I think, just one iteration of that. And already we're like, are you kidding? I didn't know that. Are you kidding me? We've got somebody that's a CEO of this company and we didn't even know it. And the wealth screening clearly is wrong, you know, and where right. they, it's, so they're already in that first iteration. Um, you know, some great surprises to us. And I love that that technology that, you know, you can communicate through LinkedIn with people and start your engagement there. And that's, it used to be that it was because you called them or you sent an email. And um, so, I mean, yeah, I remember getting a list of lost alumni and you like spend 10 minutes, they're all on LinkedIn. They're not lost. They know exactly where they are. And it's not their <laughs> responsibility that we don't know where they are. And that's part of the catalyst for us to, to move in this sort of career movement, career monitoring, um, uh, well, you know, that is initiative that we've launched, but, but it can't just be another data pen service. Like this sector does not need another data pen. We need <laughs> an opportunity to aggregate the data, to identify what really matters and then take action, right? Then go from, hey, these are people who just got promoted. These are the top 10 that we would be crazy to not congratulate, engage, interview, have the dean congratulate them, get them connected to the president. Like it's so there hidden in plain sight. And that's where um, we, we are spending a lot of time thinking. And, and that's part of, you know, part of it is the data, but then part of it is what is our process to actually act on the data, which is not always been clear, I think, in the sector. It hasn't. And it's, what do we do with it? Now we have it. What do we do with it? And um, and you could do a lot of things. Just make sure there's yeah. something, something, not just right? great news. We did the data append. We updated the companies. Let's go on to the next project. It's like, no, now that we did that, we have so much more insight that could help us. Major giving, discovery, annual giving, matching gifts. There's so much potential. Um, and so I think that's where we're really excited is I feel like that data stuff that used to be so hard over the last couple of years, it's still challenging, but it has become so much more straightforward. Now, mm -hmm. operationalizing and executing, creating new roles and structures, you know, we can't do that, right? That's what you and your colleagues and peers in the sector need to do. We can help brainstorm and collaborate on it because the data is making new things possible. And so even stewarding people as they get promoted, that's not been a, a systematic process for most advancement shops yet so many times when people get promoted they can trace that promotion back to uh, their college experience or a mentor or that early job yep. that they got and we just feel like there's there's so much potential there in 2021 and beyond we uh, could not agree more and just looking at literally just looking at my file um today it's like oh gosh okay um, excited about the opportunity that's there. So I, I, we are evolving, we are innovating, but we we can't, you know, I can't wait on a written process that's going to take six months for review to do this. Like we need it now. This data is fresh. It's here. What are we doing? And while we're doing it, we can write the process for what's happening next time. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Well, look, you are, um, we're in the midst of what has been a challenging time. There have been a lot of hiring freezes around the sector, but you're also at one of the fastest growing institutions in the country. And so on one hand, uh, student growth, uh, enrollment growth has been really significant. I think the fastest growing in the system and one of the faster growing institutions in the country. How do you balance kind of that kind of growth with having to really take a pause from a team building and growth perspective? And where are you 
Is there a hiring thaw around the corner? Yeah, well, um, I certainly hope so. Um, UNC Charlotte has been the beneficiary of huge enrollment growth and sustained enrollment growth. Um, so as a part of a state system, we probably were hurt less than some of our counterparts because enrollment you know, funding certainly helps us. I think we'll all experience, um, probably everyone, but really state universities will experience our kind of budget crunch next year. Um, I do, I am excited about some of the things we've learned that we don't have to travel everywhere we've had to go. That might, you know, that budget might still remain small. Um, we are right now looking at, um, you know, are there, instead of um, cutting back, are there ways to reimagine the roles that we have to better utilize someone's strengths, to have a better return on investment? Um, we will be just like you know everyone else. We finished the campaign. We'll be moving into one, so we are planning. What are we going to need in three years? And are there what are the positions that we can start? You know, working towards now. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that this is a short-lived kind of hold tight. I don't see us you know posting tens and twenties and you know hundreds of jobs right now, but I think we're preparing for that will come. And so what does that look like? And how do we, and a lot of, um, you know, what we are doing remotely and digitally and using technology, can we continue to do more of that? And also the technology, I think, is showing what the potential is. So how do we start to show to our um, administrators, we've achieved this, but here's what we're leaving on the table. And with this investment, right. we could get X. And I, you know, I think we've always showed, we've always kept metrics and how we performed, but I don't think we've always shown potential and, and make yeah. a decision. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, technology really can help. Um, and it's not just the, the software, but the underlying data as we've been discussing. You know, if you're running assessments or feasibility studies off of incredibly inaccurate career data, well, that's going to undersell the potential. And so I think the more that we can improve the underlying data asset, the more clearly we can really be confident in what the potential is, which then informs a hiring plan so that hopefully as you uh, are going to the president or the board someday, it's really rooted in data that we've not been able to uh, you know, have at our disposal in the past that goes way beyond a traditional feasibility study so that we don't undersell the potential. Yeah, and, and I think it's... Um you know, we've already started with, here's what's next. I mean, you may not have, we may not be able to fund this position today, but we need it soon to meet this objective of this sort of campaign. Here's what we need in three years, in two years. You know, we know it. Here's what they would be doing. So we're, we're already talking about it. So that's an understood. And, you know, at some point it's, how do we find the money for this? But in the meantime, being good stewards of our resources continuing to show um, progress and return on that. And um, I, I do think that, I, I think a lot of university presidents and others went into this space or into this, this time, this pandemic thinking, oh gosh, this is gonna be terrible and fundraising numbers are gonna be terrible. And, you know, we, while they're 
maybe not where we wanted them to be or where we anticipated in a normal time, they haven't been terrible. I mean, it hasn't been for us at least. And, and look, I think, you know, that's where there's a lot of talk right now about the recovery and, and, and this comment around a K-shaped recovery. And the reality is the stock market is an all-time high. The savings rate has been through the roof. Discretionary purchases, swimming pools, home improvement, people are spending money. And so I think there's this, this juxtaposition, especially in the college space where you're on campuses, you've been dealing with some of the most complicated logistical operational situations in the world. Uh, at the same time, many of your donors are doing better than ever. And it's hard to accept that and reconcile the pain that we see in the news and the main street pain, which is real, with the reality that many people are doing incredibly well. And therefore, we need to be aggressive because we've got problems that need to be solved. They are hidden. And I mean, they are they are uh, very clear. And so let's be aggressive. And also our donors aren't traveling. They have more time. Uh, there are fewer excuses about why they came together. We, we don't need to spend two weeks planning a visit to, to go see them. So I do feel like there are a lot of really positive aspects here. But I know that we all went through this period of just being a little gun shy to really make those bold asks in the early part of the pandemic. But hopefully we're coming out of that, um, recognizing that, that a lot of folks are doing really well right now. Well, and you started off with it's Giving Tuesday, even though someone might not hear this um, for weeks. So at whatever time it is, it's four o'clock now, and I, I haven't looked at, I haven't gotten a report in a couple of hours. Um, we have more than doubled what we did in last year's Giving Tuesday this year. And we've more than doubled in gifts and new donors and in our Libons and Cybons. And it's because, um, you know, we thought about it differently. Um, we're doing it. And, and I think, well, that's not a major, you know, that's not going to be $2 million for us. But to know that you could do that in this time is, I think it's reflective of right. everything else. Yeah. Uh, E-commerce through the roof. Uh, we just had Cyber Monday through the roof. You know, there's no yep. reason um, that if, if people are going to be making discretionary e-commerce purchases, that they can't be making discretionary philanthropic uh, investments as well. And so I think part of the opportunity, Beth, for you, for your colleagues, and certainly this is a big area of focus for us at Evertrue, is how do we go from a day like Giving Tuesday and really turn that into the first step in the journey? Not uh, yeah. that it's the end, it's the beginning, because there are going to be a bunch of people who donate today who've never donated before, or maybe it's been a few years since they've donated. How do we use the same approach to the data? Th think about that funnel approach, which is of those thousand donors, who are the top 100 that aren't on our radar that we really need to now take this as a moment so that their stewardship and experience the next month, two months, three months, five months from now is different and leveled up relative to the masses. And, and just being okay, acknowledging we cannot treat everyone the same, even though we'd love to, if we had unlimited resources, we can't, but how do we look at Giving Tuesday so that maybe six months or a year from now, you could actually say we did end up raising $2 million. It wasn't all that day. That day gave us the names, but because of the follow-up plan, the data, the analytics, new approaches to prospect development, we were actually able to then go on to secure hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from people who otherwise would have not surfaced, right? That's on us, that's on you. I'm really excited for that challenge. We are too. And I, I do think this was, I think Giving Tuesday for us was a prime example of just using 
technology, looking through the lens of where we are through the pandemic, what people understand about universities and need. And, um, you know, we did a, we, we do our food pantry on Giving Tuesday and we've always had a corporate food drive and we're like, gosh, what do we do? Nobody's at work. So we did a virtual food drive. We will never do a court. We will do it virtually. That was so easy. Everyone shops on Amazon anyway. You create a wish list on Amazon and everybody just clicks on, you incredible. know, there are things that's incredible. So it's, it's, it's no been doubt. a great experience. It's been great learning more. No, it's been great learning more about your journey and what you're excited about your frustrations as well. Um, if people want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way? I know you're on LinkedIn. Do you have anything else you'd recommend for our audience? So I am on LinkedIn. I'm always open to emails. And um, so on our website at uncc.edu, it not only has my email address, it also has my cell phone. I'm always open to anyone calling, love to share ideas and hear from others. So I'm happy, always happy to help when I can. Excellent. Well, with that, Beth, we're going to wrap up today's show, but uh, thank you so much. Happy uh, giving Tuesday. I hope it is the start of a great uh, conclusion to this uh, this challenging year um, uh, as, as you see the numbers uh, moving uh, at your shop. But we're really grateful to be on the journey together. Wish you and your team the best. Brent, signing off from Oceanside. Take care. Thank you.